Welcome to the National Presbyterian Church Podcast. I'm Pastor Ray Hilton, and I'd like to personally say how thrilled we are to share our sermon with you this week. If you feel encouraged by our messages, we invite you to hit the subscribe button so you will never miss an episode. Now, let's go to the National Presbyterian Church Sanctuary and hear the word of the Lord. The scripture reading today is from John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to see him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and making her stand before all of them, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They said this to test him, so that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again, he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the elders. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus straightened up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, sir. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way, And from now on, do not sin again. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, thank you, Weston. The prophet Isaiah reminds us in Isaiah 40 and verse 8 that the the word, that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it will stand forever. And so may this reading that we've heard this morning uh, stay with us and encourage us in our walk with God. Now, if you have a Bible available, I want to encourage you to take hold of that Bible, whether it's the one you brought with you or the Pew Bible, and just go back to that reading. Because there's a bit of textual controversy surrounding the passage that was just read. In fact, it starts from chapter 7, verse 53, and it ends at the 11th verse of John chapter 8. There's a bit of textual controversy. And you can find that. You say, well, what is a controversy? that this text does not appear in the earliest manuscripts of the New Testament. New Testament scholars believe that this story was added at a later stage. And so if you look at the end of the page, you will see a notation there. Maybe it has the letter K and it has a few words there saying that this is not found in the earliest manuscripts. And so the question is, what do we do with that? Do we throw it out? Do we say, "Uh uh-oh, we shouldn't have read this? I say no. Even though it's not included in the Gospels, it most likely existed as part of an oral tradition. And furthermore, there's nothing here that is unworthy of sound teaching and sound doctrine. The text is consistent. And I think you'd agree with me. This text is consistent with the nature of who Jesus is and all that he taught. And I believe there is so much here to help us, to build up our church, 
and to build up our lives. So I'm going to invite you just to say a prayer with me. Please pray with me. Lord, with you is the fountain of life. And in your light, we see light. So come now and drive away the scales and the darkness from our eyes so that we can truly see what you have for us today. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So let's look at this story. As we, as we read, Jesus got up early in the morning and he goes to the temple. Maybe he's going there to pray, we don't know. But as he gets to the temple, we're told that all these people, they apparently got up early, they were tracking him, they were waiting for him, and they came to him, and so Jesus sat down and he started teaching them. And while he's teaching them, as we heard clearly in the reading from Wes, the scribes and the Pharisees are also up early, and they're determined to find every possible way to diminish and to undermine the ministry of Jesus, and so they brought this woman a woman who was caught in the very act of adultery. And you can just picture them with great fanfare. They drag this woman and unceremoniously they dump her before Jesus and the crowd. And in my mind's eye, I picture a woman who her head is bowed, her hands are not big enough to cover her face. This woman is totally humiliated and the scribes and the Pharisees, they're standing tall. Their chests are sticking out. Their faces are disfigured with pride. And they said, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commands us to stone such women. So what do you say? As you read that and you think about it, Jesus is caught between two big monsters, the Scylla and the Charybdis. If Jesus upholds the, the Mosaic law and condemns the woman, in many ways Jesus would be taking the right to execute someone out of the hands of the Romans and he then would be caught and possibly executed by the Romans for committing capital punishment. Only the Roman government can do that. If Jesus then condones the woman, then the scribes and the Pharisees can come back at him and say, you're not a true teacher. You are an antinomian. You don't believe in the law of Moses. So what should he do? Should he condemn the woman? Should he condone the woman's behavior? Jesus finds a third way. And if you look at verse 6, it tells us very clearly that they did this to test him so that they might bring some charge against him. These people weren't interested in the woman. They weren't interested in her condition. They weren't even interested in the facts of the case. As far as they were concerned, she was just a pawn. She was a tool that they were going to use to somehow undermine the ministry, and discredit Jesus before these people. One of the commentaries I love to read is by a, a scholar, a woman by the name of Marion Mai Thompson. And in her commentary on John, she picks up the irony of these religious leaders' actions. 
Here's what she wrote. She said, the law also forbids men to commit adultery. And she cites Exodus 20 and Leviticus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, several places where the law speaks not just to women but to men. The scribes and the Pharisees bring only one of the guilty parties. And she says, if they were truly committed to upholding the law, why only the woman? Where is the man? And that is a powerful question to ask. John Deere, in his book, The Questions of Jesus, says that of the over three to 400 questions that people asked Jesus, Jesus only answered three of them. And as we can see from our reading this morning, this is one of the questions that Jesus did not answer. Instead of answering them, Jesus bends down to the ground and he starts to write something in the dirt. And while he's writing, his detractors are pelting him with questions. Aren't you going to answer us? And then finally, Jesus stands up and notice what he says to them in verse 7. Let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. It's as if Jesus is saying, okay, folks, let's go. Take your best shot. If you're certain you have no sin in your life, go ahead and throw the stone. Someone wrote that if you're truly not guilty of this sin, if you are not guilty of this sin, cast the first stone. And then just like before, Jesus goes back down to his knees and he starts to write again in the sand. Jesus' words stopped their hands in mid-flight. They froze. They stopped talking. They stopped rushing to judgment and they started to think. And in stopping to think about the question Jesus asked them, their dark thoughts were unmasked. And suddenly, they saw themselves on the jumbotron, this big screen of God's truth. And the first thing, if you were in the crowd, the first thing you would hear, you would hear that, that, that sudden, constant thud of stones hitting the ground. And one by one, they turned and they shuffled away quietly. Notice what verse 9 says. If you have your Bibles open, just look again at verse 9. It says that the older ones left first. You ever wonder why that might be true? Here's my guess. The older ones left first because they had more stuff in their lives to confess. The longer we live, if we're really self-aware, the longer we live, the more we realize just how flawed and how broken and how compromised our lives are. The younger ones, I would imagine, looked on at the older ones leaving and decided, well, we better go too. But before long, the entire group vanished. And Jesus is alone with the woman. And for the second time, we're told that Jesus stood up and for the first time, he spoke to the woman. He doesn't even call her by a name. Maybe he doesn't even know her name. He says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Some translations read it this way. Where are your accusers? Has no one stoned you? And she said with great relief, no, Lord. And then Jesus uttered 
the richest combination, I think, of grace and truth you will find in all of Scripture. Jesus says to the woman, neither do I condemn you. I'm not going to stone you. I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to banish you. In essence, I think Jesus is saying to this woman, you are loved, you are forgiven, you are washed. Jesus accepted her where she was. That's what he did. But let's just think for a moment about what Jesus didn't do. Jesus accepted her, I said, but Jesus did not approve of her actions. And I know in the times that we live, not only should we accept people, but we should approve of any and everything that people are doing. And if you're not approving it, then something is wrong with you. Jesus accepted, but he didn't approve her actions. Another thing Jesus didn't do, Jesus didn't say to the woman that the problem of adultery was a social construction of these prudish, backward rabbis trying to oppress women and trying to oppress people and prevent them from their right to sexual freedom. Jesus didn't say that. Jesus did not encourage the woman to develop greater self-esteem. Jesus did not deny the reality that the woman did in fact and the man, whoever he is, violated the seventh commandment. He was not an antinomian. But Jesus also was concerned that the, her accusers did not have the moral standing to carry out their penalty. You see, for Jesus, sin is not sort of this this, this overlay of religious sensitivity or sentimentality. For Jesus, sin is a reality. It's powerful. It wounds. It scars. It, it diminishes. It destroys. And that's why at his birth, the angel told his mother Mary, give him the name Jesus, because he would save his people from what? From their sin. That's why Jesus came. That's why he gave his life on the cross. And then after showing her grace, he points her in a new direction and he tells her the truth. So if you go back to the beginning of John's gospel, it says that Jesus is full of grace and he's full of truth. And this is what he extends to this woman. He tells her the truth. He wants her to know that all sin is rebellion against God. He wants the woman to somehow know that sin is ruining ruin us, rather, to human flourishing, that, that sin ruptures relationships. And I, in my own imagination, I try to picture that woman going back home. And she has a lot of mending to do with the people in her life. But Jesus says to her, go your way, and from now on, do not sin again. So Jesus calls her to a new way of life. Grace, mercy, because without God's grace, we have no hope. Without God's grace, we, we, we do not have the strength. Without God's grace, we do not have the desire to walk in a new life. Jesus doesn't condemn the woman, but he surely doesn't condone it. How cruel 
it would have been to simply say to the woman, go and sin no more, and that's it. Such a call to morality sounds good on the surface, but this woman doesn't have the capacity. You, I do not have the capacity to do good by ourselves. She needed grace. She needed hope and forgiveness. And with that power of grace in her life, only then would she be able to live this new life. I love Rosaria Butterfield's books. This woman was a, a lesbian woman who taught as an endowed professor in, in literature at Syracuse University for years until she met Christ. And she writes out of that experience as someone who was a lesbian. And she wrote a book not long ago called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And notice what she says. She's speaking out of her own journey. She said, we trust God's power more than we trust our limitations. And we know that God never gives a command without giving the grace to perform it. That's worth coming to church today. You can take that back home with you and meditate on that. Augustine said it in a similar way, that law orders, but grace supplies the power to act. So I have a question for you before I take my seat. Actually, one major question with three parts. Where are your accusers? Because we're all being accused of something. We're all being accused by someone somewhere. Where are your accusers? And why are you being accused and who is accusing you? Accusers, I believe, come from three main sources. And let me quickly share them with you. Number one, sometimes the accusation comes from within us. It comes from ourselves. We are sometimes our worst enemy. We are good at condemning ourselves. We did something wrong. And after we recognize that we've done the thing, we constantly demean and we condemn ourselves. And some of us, we live in the past and we replay these ugly negative tapes in our minds. I call it the imposter syndrome on steroids. Because of our past, we feel we are never, ever good enough. Some of you may remember this amazing singer by the name of Amy Winehouse. I remember when Amy burst on the scene, this British woman who just took the American music scene by storm years ago. She had that beautiful contralto voice. And the song that she sang, the song that put her on the map, went something like this. They tried to make me go to rehab, but I said, no, no, no. Yes, I've been black, but when I come back, you'll know, know, know. The sad reality is she never really went to rehab for any length of time, and she never came back from one of her binges. And after a long battle with drugs and alcohol, Amy Winehouse, one of England's greatest young singers, died from an overdose. She was only 27 years old. She gave one last interview before she died. She said this, and I, you, you say it too, I say it. I am my own worst critic. And if I don't pull off what I want to do in my head, she said that I won't be happy. I won't be happy. She wrote another song 
you know I'm no good. Where she keeps repeating, I told you I was trouble, you know that I'm no good. And here is this incredibly talented, famous, rich, young woman who is just like all of us, utterly lost in sin and addiction, shame, hungering for Christ's healing grace, accusing herself, never finding a way out, never finding a way to experience deep love and grace and forgiveness. I have to remind myself of this because I know that God forgives me. And I've often said, but I can't forgive myself. And whenever I do that, what I'm really saying is, I am looking at an idol for approval, an idol's approval I could never meet, an idol that is more important than God. So that's where some of the accusation comes from. It comes from ourselves, but it also comes from people. People can be so mean. People can accuse. People can be harsh. People can be judgmental. And how many of us have had parents who never acknowledged the good that you did, never spoke a word of affirmation or blessing over anything that you did. Maybe you are a parent who has fallen into that trap, or maybe you have a boss like that, or maybe you have a friend like that who criticizes you and cuts you down. And if you have someone like that in your life, or you are being someone like that to someone else, Here's what I would encourage you to do. You have to locate your identity. Base your identity, base your self-worth in God. Never base your self-worth or your identity on the praises of people or on the curses of people. I had to learn this lesson over, over many, many years. I had to lean into this truth. That my identity, my sense of self-worth is based not on what others say about me, but it's based in God. Because people can say the most wonderful thing to you. You're amazing. But then you stumble and you fall. And that same person comes along and says you are worthless. And when your identity and your self-worth are founded on the grace of God, whether people praise you, whether they accuse you, whether they say all manner of evil things against you, Jesus says you can rejoice in the Lord because your identity is rooted in Christ. So we accuse ourselves. People will surely accuse us. And then finally, the devil will accuse us. The devil's name means diabolos, slanderer, accuser. He will come directly. He will come indirectly through people. Satan will accuse you. I think of that passage in Zechariah chapter 3 and verse 1 where the prophet Zechariah receives a vision and this is what he saw. He said, I saw Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and at his right hand, Joshua said, Satan is standing there accusing him. Another place where I, and in many places, but another place in the Bible where I saw the work of Satan accusing is in Revelation chapter 12. 
where the writer says, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and authority of his Christ have come for the accuser, referring to the devil, the accuser of our comrades, the accuser of God's people has been thrown down who accuses them night and day before God. Can you imagine that? The devil spewing accusations about you night and day because he hates you. Friends, when you are being accused, whether by yourself, whether by people, whether by the devil, I want you to remember these words. If God is for you, who can be against you? When you're being accused, I want you to remember that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. I want you to remember when you're being accused that nothing can separate you from God's love, that God keeps no record of your wrongs. When you, when, when you bring that to God in repentance, it's gone. God doesn't remember it, but Satan does. People do, and we do, but not God. So maybe you're here this morning, and you came to church feeling beat up. You have this negative tape being played in your mind, telling you that you're no good. You've been crushed by some people this week. People's perception of you, it's, it's in the mud right now. Maybe you're having a hard time forgiving yourself because you made a mistake in the past. Who hasn't committed something? When you look back, you wish you could, you could just get a do-over. I've been there. And if we Presbyterians would just kind of kind of put all that pristineness away, all of us would admit this morning, Pastor, I have been there. I, I have those skeletons in my closet. And you're thinking that God would never forgive you for what you've done. But I'm here to tell you that's not true because here's the good news of the gospel. The gospel tells us that we're so sinful that Jesus had to die for us Yet we're so loved, Pastor Tim Keller likes to say, we're so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for us. And this reality then leads us to profound humility. This reality leads us to deep confidence. Humility and confidence. We don't feel superior to other people. In fact, we feel like comrades in arms when we see people suffering because we've been there. And yet, at the same time, we have nothing to prove to anyone. One of my favorite songs say, He has forgiven you. Your sin has been washed from his memory. By the blood of the Lamb of Calvary, he has forgiven you. And I urge you this morning, my brothers and sisters, to lay hold of the gospel. Lay claim to the promises of the gospel that God has forgiven you. If you haven't repented of something that ha is happening in your life, then I urge you to come to Christ today. He doesn't have a stone in his hand. He's not pointing his finger at you. He's not going to turn his back on you. He's not going to condemn you. He wants you to come. Come to me with your burdens, with your sin. Lay them down, and I will give you rest. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and God's people say. Let's just pray together. And I'm wondering if there's anyone here today 
maybe this message is for you. Maybe you're watching online and maybe this message is for you. You're sitting under a load of guilt and condemnation and accusation. I want you to pray this prayer. You don't have to pray it out loud. Just pray it in your mind with me. God doesn't need to hear our voices to make our prayers sincere. Just pray this prayer in your mind with me. Lord Jesus, I have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. Forgive me of my double life. You know everything about me, especially the things others do not know. I confess my sin to you. I confess my need for you. Cleanse me. Wash away my sin. And today, I invite you to be the Savior and the Lord of my life. Amen. We're glad that you could be with us today. If you would like more information about our church, visit our website at nationalprayers.org. That's nationalprayers.org. Help us spread the good news of the gospel by sharing our podcast with your friends and giving us a rating. If you haven't already, be sure to click the subscribe button. See you next week.